0: Howdy, howdy, folks. You are tuned into the Double-Edged Sword program here on our fine family of Divine Mercy Catholic radio stations, KMDG 105.7 Hayes, KGOH 89.1 Colby, KRTT 88.1 Great Bend, KJDM 101.7 Lindsberg Salina, and our flagship station where it all started, 88.1 Hayes. KVDM. We are the voice of Divine Mercy for Central and Western Kansas, and here on these Catholic airwaves, we are cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture. And today, on today's double-edged sword, um, it's going to be kind of the same, but kind of different. Kind of the same in that we will look at some topics here, and we will treat them in greater detail than like I could on a Sunday sermon. Um, But these topics are coming from our listeners. Um, The number of listeners have written in with questions and so um, this is going to be kind of a question and answer sort of deal where i'm just going to answer questions that were sent to us um, by our listeners and see if that helps other listeners out as well there's one particular question here which is we're going to go into the weeds pretty deep as we try to sort through this one but we'll do some um, we'll do some of the some of the easier ones first Um, the first one It says, good Catholic teachers are teaching our children that they should go to sleep at night and ask their guardian angel what their name is. Father Mitch Pacwa, everybody knows him from EWTN. I've forgotten, or he's forgotten more about um, the Catholic faith than I'll ever know, and so I'll never argue with Father Mitch. But on Catholic Radio, he's telling us we should not do that. Why should we not name our guardian angels? Where did this practice of naming our guardian angels come from? And lastly, how do we know for sure that we have a guardian angel? Well, let's answer the easiest question first. The easiest question is, how do we know there's a guardian angel? Because Jesus said so. That's how. In the, in the Gospel of St. Matthew, in chapter 18, verse 10, Jesus says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you, their angels in heaven always look upon the face of my heavenly Father. So our Lord's saying an awful lot there. He says, you do not despise one of these little ones. In other words, don't lead the little ones into error or sin because their angels in heaven always look upon the face of my heavenly father. Now, looking upon the face of God, that's Bible talk for someone who is a saint. Um, I'm not much of an, an expert on what they call angelology. There really is such a thing and um but the thing of it is is the bible is not a handbook on angels um the bible is a collection of stories and poems and you know thing letters and things like that and out of those stories we have to extract um you know kind of what these meanings are and um one of them is like for example we'll talk about the six-winged seraph the six wings seraphim. And um, with the six wings, it's, in other words, that's three pairs of two wings. With one pair of wing, wings, the seraph covers his eyes. Why? Because he doesn't want to look at God. He can't look at God. And then with the other pair of wings, he flies to do God's bidding. And with the third pair of wings, he covers up his feet um, because feet are dirty and stinky. He doesn't want to offend God. So, again, that's you know kind of a metaphorical way of talking. What does that mean? Well, that the seraphs do God's will. They do his bidding. That's what the one set of wings stands for. They do not behold the face of God. And, you know, because they cover their eyes with, with, with one of their sets of wings, which is a way of saying that God created these particular beings not to behold him face to face. Not everybody gets to behold God face to face. And again, with their third set of wings covering their feet, it shows their posture of humility before the God who made them. But there are other angels who do see God face to face. One of them, one class of angels are the archangels, um, the archangel Raphael um, in, the, in the book of Tobit. When he finally um, reveals his identity to Tobias and, and his father and his family, you know, he says, I am Raphael, you know, one of the seven spirits that constantly beholds the face of God. And so, again, there are some angels that do see God face to face. The archangels are some of them, and the guardian angels are other ones. So it says right here, you know, Jesus says they're angels, the angels of the little ones, of the, of the children of God, which is all of us. Constantly behold God face to face. And so there's where you have the, you know, the, the scriptural um, evidence for us telling that there is such a thing as a guardian angel. So that, you know, that's the easiest one. But the thing about naming a, um, uh, an angel, the idea of naming something, this kind of goes back to um, through the book of Exodus, whenever Moses appears before God in the burning bush. And um, whenever, you know, God appears to Moses in the burning bush and says, "Okay, Moses, I've heard the cry of my people. I want you to go to Egypt and get them out of there. And then Moses starts listing off a whole bunch of excuses as to why he's not the man for the job. And one of the things he does kind of probing at God a little bit, because back in those days to ask someone's name, That was a very personal thing. Names are very personal. In our day and age, you know, we'll stick out our hand and, you know, shake anybody's hand and, you know, hey, you know, John Smith here, glad to meet you. Oh, glad to meet you, John. You know, and and in our culture, we think nothing of, of, you know, belting our name out. But in ancient days, it wasn't so much so. You know, you might hang out with someone for, you know, a week before they'll finally tell you what their name is because names give us power. And um, I always notice like in all my years of teaching, if you're in a classroom and you say, hey, you, the kids just kind of keep doing what they're doing. If you say, hey, you in the back, well, then maybe the kids in the back might kind of perk up a little bit. But you can say, hey, Carl, hey, Lori, you know, when you can send someone's name, they stop whatever they're doing, they turn and look at you. Because having someone's name gives you power. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why um, we're advised not to try to name our guardian angels. Because, it, you know, we think that by naming them then that we can just call them by name and they'll be at our beck and call. The second thing is God's probably already named them. And so, they, you know, they don't need a name from us. And so, I, again, I think that's probably you know, a couple of reasons why it's probably not a good idea to name our guardian angels. Where the practice came from, I have no idea. But again, I think I would I would concur with Father Mitch as to it. It's probably not a good idea to go around trying to to, um, to name our guardian angels. Um, another question comes from a lady named Dorothy, and it says, "Will a Protestant be able to get to heaven?" I love my Catholic faith and am worried that my Protestant friends may not be able to make it there. Um, the the Church teaches unequivocally that non-Catholics and even non-baptized persons um, can make it into heaven. The, if you, if you, look at, you look it up in the Catechism, it says that baptism, and this is a direct quote, I've memorized this, baptism is necessary for the salvation for all those to whom the, the gospel has been proclaimed and who have had the opportunity to ask for that sacrament, okay? So baptism is necessary for the salvation. In other words, if you don't have it, you don't go to heaven. Baptism is necessary for the the salvation of those who, number one, have heard the proclamation of the gospel, and number two, have had the opportunity to ask for the sacrament. Therefore, the opposite must also be true. Baptism is not necessary for the salvation for those who have not heard the gospel message and those who have not had the opportunity to ask for that sacrament. And so what the church teaches, and you read about this in Eucharistic Prayer 4, um, it doesn't get used very much at Mass, but in Eucharistic Prayer 4, we commend to God, you know, all those who seek Him with a sincere heart. On the, the, the petitions that we have during Good Friday, at the Good Friday services, we pray for the church around the world. Then we pray for, there's there's a petition for those of, who, who believe in Jesus but are not Catholic. In other words, the non-Catholics are Protestants. Then we pray for the Jewish people, the first to receive the word of God. And you know, that God will remain faithful to the covenant that he made with them. And they'll remain faithful to the covenant on, on their part as well. Then we pray that for those who, who aren't, uh, aren't Jewish or Christians at all, be like the Muslims and the Hindus and things like that. And then we pray for people who don't even believe in God, you know, pray for the atheists, And so, you know, what what the church teaches is, is that, you know, our Cadillac ride into into eternal salvation is to hitch our wagon up, you know, with the Catholic church to understand, you know, the riches and the the goodies that the church provides and that, um, you know, taking advantage of those good things that come to us, primarily through the sacraments and through the church's wise understanding of human nature and the scriptures and things like that, we have a well-lit path into heaven. Um, if we don't have those things, you know, salvation is possible, um, but it's going to be tough, you know, to to the extent that anyone, you know, the, the church says the church, you know, recognizes truth wherever it is found you know and so non-catholic folks they believe that Jesus is the son of god so do we they believe Jesus rose from the dead so do we um they believe that you know Jesus is the the you know the cause of salvation in the world you know we believe that too obviously there are some places where we have some you know major you know disagreements with those folks but to the extent the church teaches to the extent that they're plugging along and doing the best they can and you know following you know the the the, the path of discipleship as best they understand it that you know salvation will be possible for them as well i you know think that we you know we, we we really do ourselves a big disservice if you know you hear it from both sides you know you have catholics going oh, them protestants are going to hell because they ain't catholic that doesn't do anybody any good i've also heard protestants those catholics they're not even christian they don't believe in jesus they believe in mary they believe in the pope they're going to hell see that's counterproductive that don't do that doesn't do anybody any good and so, um, you know, can can a Protestant get to heaven? They sure can. Can a Hindu get to heaven? They sure can. You know, can someone who lives in some, you know, undiscovered tribe deep in some jungle somewhere get to heaven? They sure can. Will they? Don't know. Not necessarily. Just like you know, being a member of the Catholic Church isn't a guarantee that you're going to go to heaven. There's lots of folks out there. One of them, the president of the United States, comes to mind, Joe Biden. You know, who claimed to be Catholic but they, everything they believe and teach and talk about is as antithetical to the Catholic faith as it can possibly be. And so, you know, just because someone claims to be Catholic doesn't necessarily mean they've got a guaranteed rocket ride into heaven. You know, we have to respond to that as well. Um, the next one comes from somebody named Phyllis, and it says, I have been baptized and made my first communion in the Catholic Church. I go to confession frequently. I have never been confirmed. I still have the Holy Spirit dwelling in me. I pray to God always to open my heart and to fill me with His Holy Spirit. I don't think I still need confirmation. Can I still get married in the Catholic Church if I have not been confirmed? And am I correct in thinking that God will give me the Holy Spirit to help me with my spiritual needs? Well, okay, Phyllis, like a lot of things, there's a lot of truth in what you say, um, but there's enough error in it to make the whole thing kind of toxic. Okay. You have been, you know, you say, do you have the Holy Spirit by virtue of having been baptized? Yes, you have the Holy Spirit. That's one of the effects of baptism is the infusion of the Holy Spirit. And as a result of baptism, you know, we have the, you know, we have the spirit within us, which is, you know, a tremendous gift. Um, But... At the same time, what the Sacrament of Confirmation does is it completes what baptism started. It sacramentally completes what baptism started. And I'm just going to talk about that on face value. We're going to come back and flesh it out with an example here in a second. But um, the whole thing is, is that, you know, baptism begins everything, giving us the theological virtues of faith, hope and love. And again, giving us what's called habitual grace, that is getting rid of original sin and orientating us fundamentally, you know, towards almighty God. And so, you know, again, that's that's the, you know, the wonderful gift of baptism. But as good as baptism is, it needs confirmation to finish it off. And so, you know, can you go through life without being confirmed? you sure could but why would you want to you know when 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 all these graces are available and yet to anybody and all you have to do is just ask for it and do whatever preparation for the sacrament and receive the sacrament of confirmation, why wouldn't you want it? It's a gift, a tremendous gift, just sitting there looking at us. Now, it says, can I still get married in the Catholic Church who have not been confirmed? Um, the answer is no. Um, you know, I forgot which can it is, but it's in the Code of Canon Law. It says that, you know, if, if if the person has not been confirmed yet before marriage, they need to be confirmed before they get married. Now, again, if, if there's some you know, really bizarre, over extenuating circumstance, you know, there would, you know, you had someone that, you know, their, their fiance is getting ready to march off to war and they want to be married before they go off to war for, you know, whatever reason. Sometimes they got pretty good reasons. Then, you know, you could go ahead and do, you could do the, do the, do the, the sacrament of matrimony without being confirmed. But if you've got time on your side and you're just going to the local parish and going, yep, you know, I want to receive this acronym of matrimony. I want to marry, you know, my boyfriend, my girlfriend, whatever here, my fiance, but I'm not confirmed. Well then we're going to have to do some confirmation preparation. You have to get confirmed before you get married because that's required by church law. You know, one of the precepts of the church is to obey the laws of the church regarding marriage. And one of the laws of church regarding marriage is we got to be confirmed before we can get married so um that's um that's kind of that but the thing is i want to go back and talk a little bit about you know these graces of confirmation because it's like so many things you know when when you look for example at a married couple since we talked about marriage here and you can also talk about you know an ordained priest that on the day of the wedding on the day of the young man's ordination to the priesthood. Do these couples and do these young men, do they really have a clue as to what they're getting into as far as, you know, married life and priesthood, what it's going to bring? If anyone tells you they do know what they're getting into? They're either stupid or they're lying to you, okay? Because there's no way, you know, you, you, talk, to, you talk to couples that have been married for even just five years, even you know, maybe two or three years. They'll always say, oh my gosh, I didn't realize I was getting into all this. I mean, a lot of it's, you know, it's fun, it's, it's exciting, it's stimulating to kind of work through it all. And sometimes it's difficult, might, you know, cause a few tears here and there. Same thing in the priesthood, you know, you get into this and you go, I never thought I was getting ordained to do this. And just, you know, the various things you get, you get drawn into for the good and the bad. And so um, the idea is, is that we grow into these sacraments. You know, if, if, if whenever, if we had to tell a couple, we had to tell a couple, look, You're not going to receive the sacrament of matrimony until you're 100% ready. No one would ever get married. If we told a young man, you cannot be ordained to the priesthood until you're 100% ready, we would never ordain another priest. You know, we do the best we can to prepare these people as best we can to get them ready for these sacraments. But then it's a sacrament you have to kind of grow into. And, 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 it's really kind of a beautiful thing. You know, when you, when you look at married couples, you know, that have been married for 40, 50, 60 years, and you just kind of consider everything they've been through that sacrament of matrimony means a heck of a lot, something a heck of a lot different to a couple celebrating their 50th wedding anniversary than it does to a couple of newlyweds. You know, is what the newlyweds experiencing bad or wrong? No, it's not. It's proper to newlyweds, but When you look at the couple that's been married for 50 years, You know, what that sacrament of matrimony means to them is a lot different and I'm sure a lot more profound than what it means to those newlyweds. Same thing with a priest, you know, that, um, you know, you you have a a newly ordained priest and they're young and idealistic and energetic and all that kind of good stuff. And then you got us whole workhorses that have been around for 30, 40 and 50 years. And, you know, our our understanding of, of holy ordination is quite a bit different than the newly ordained. Does it mean the newly ordained are wrong or bad? Not at all. It just means they haven't had the experience yet, and that you know, we keep, you know, pushing our way through it and trying to understand it. Well, confirmation is the same way. A lot of times you, know, you hear people say, Well, you know, yeah, I got fir- got confirmed and I didn't feel anything. And I'm going, Yeah, so what's your point? You know, the 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 idea confirmation isn't to entertain us. Confirmation isn't to, again, gin up some kind of a feeling of euphoria or something like that, confirmation is to finish off baptism. And so therefore, you know, we have to grow into the sacrament of confirmation the way we grow into the other ones. I mean, look at baptism for goodness sake. You know, we were all baptized as babies most of us. We had no concept of what baptism is, but hopefully as we get older and we reflect on that sacrament of baptism, that was one of the big teachings of the Second Vatican Council, was that when you when you talk about the universal call to holiness, all of us, this comes from Lumen Gentium, all of us are called into this, this life of, of wholeness or holiness um, through our baptism. And so Vatican II called us to reflect upon our baptism, even if we were baptized as little babies, you know, to get the Bible out and read the references to baptism, get the catechism out, read what the catechism says about baptism and ask myself, okay, now that I'm 60 years old, Or now that I'm 15 years old or whatever, how am I living out that baptismal call that I was brought into by the grace of God on the day of my baptism? We grow into it, just like we grow into the sacrament of confirmation. And so, again, those gifts of the Holy Spirit of wisdom, understanding, knowledge, fortitude, piety, strength, fear of the Lord. You know, those things, you know, to kids getting confirmed, it's like, yeah, I memorize those. So that i could get confirmed okay good for you but now as saint paul tells timothy stir into flame those gifts you received when i imposed my hands upon you of course with with saint paul he's talking about when you ordained timothy to be a priest or a bishop but with all of us you know we have these gifts that have been given to us at these sacraments you know at baptism confirmation holy orders matrimony and so on and for most folks they just kind of sit there and smolder and St. Paul uses the example of kind of a campfire. You know, when you have your your bed of coals going, you got your embers going, and then the thing's burning down. Well, you know, you get a stick and you stir it up. And you knock the ashes off the coals and you throw some more wood on it and woof, in no time, you got the fire going again. Well, that's what St. Paul tells, tells Timothy. You know, stir into flame what you received when I imposed hands upon you. When you receive these sacraments, grow into it. And so again... The thing with confirmation, you know, someone says, well, you know, I I have the Holy Spirit. You sure do by means of your baptism. Heck yeah. No one's going to argue with that. But now with confirmation, confirmation is going to finish off or complete whatever it is the baptism started. And again, it's not so much a question as, you know, do I have to do this or are you a bad Catholic if you don't do it? I'm sitting there going if you've got the riches of these graces just waiting to be had, why would you not want it? That's kind of my big question. So again, you know, we can look at it, you know, legally and juridically. It's like, well, I guess if I want to get confirmed, if I want to get married, I'll have to get confirmed. Well, that's kind of counterproductive. I think instead um, we need to be looking at these things and asking ourselves, you know, kind of what, you know, God has come up with this stuff, not because he's bored, because he knows what's best for us. And so, you know, with this sacrament of confirmation, he makes that available to us, you know, for our good. So that we can, you know, work, work, our, work through the difficulties of life and hopefully join him one day joyously in heaven. So, again, hopefully that makes a little bit of sense regarding confirmation. Um, the big one is coming up, but I'm going to save that for the second half of the program um, because it's going to take a little bit of time to go through this one because it's, it is a real atomic fireball. So again, I am Father Fred Gatchett. I am the rector of the Sacred Heart Cathedral in Salina, Kansas. I'm also the vicar general for the Diocese of Salina. And um, you are listening to the Double-Edged Sword program here on our fine family of Divine Mercy Catholic radio stations, KMDG 105.7 Hayes. KGOH 89.1, Colby. KRTT 88.1, Great Bend. KJDM 101.7, Lindsberg Salina. And KVDM 88.1, Hayes. And here on the Double-Edged Sword program, we are cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture. We're gonna take a little break now and let you hear from the folks that um, bring this, this program to you. And we'll be right back, so sit tight. Hey, gang, we are back. This is Father Fred Gatchett here on the Double-Edged Sword program on our fine family of Divine Mercy Catholic radio stations, KMDG 105.7 Hayes, KGOH 89.1 Colby, KRTT 88.1 Great Bend, KJDM 101.7 Lindsburg Salina, and the station where it all started, KVDM 88.1 Hayes. And here on, the Divine, on Divine Mercy Radio, on the Double-Edged Sword program, we are cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture. And as I said at the beginning of this broadcast, and then this, on this particular installment of Double-Edged Sword, we're answering questions. Um, Danetta put it on the, on the website, I think, to um, invite folks, if they had questions about whatever, they could write them in, and then the, we would answer them on the Double-Edged Sword program, because it's always a priest that has Double-Edged Sword airspace. And so um, we went through and we talked about guardian angels. Um, We talked about um, getting confirmed and we talked about Protestants going to heaven. Um, That's all good stuff, but here's the big one. And I'm just gonna read the whole question. We're gonna go back and dissect this piece by piece because this one is causing a lot of pain to a lot of people. And here it is from Marie. My husband and I have a godson getting married by a family member who received a license to marry the couple. They are currently living together. The entire family and extended family will be attending the wedding. Is it okay for us to skip the ceremony and go to the remainder of the wedding celebration? We do love this couple, but don't approve of the ceremony. Also, why do young people believe they have to live together before marriage? What can we do to turn this trend around? Holy free holies. There's like 15 double-edged sword programs in that one little question there. And so we're gonna to try, to, try to sort through some of this stuff. Okay, so it says, first of all, my husband and I have a godson getting married by a family member who received a license to marry the couple. Now, whenever you're talking about a marriage, you have what's called validity and lyseity. Is it valid and is it licit? For a Catholic, for a baptized Catholic, to validly and licitly receive the sacrament of matrimony, it has to be witnessed by a deacon, priest, or bishop, an ordained minister of the church, and it has to be witnessed by two people, at least two people, okay? And so if you have, well, hey, my my buddy from high school registered with the state of Kansas as some kind of minister or whatever, and we're gonna to go to Cancun, or we're gonna to go to Cabo San Lucas and have a destination wedding, and my buddy is gonna preside at our wedding. Well, you'll be legally married by the state, you know, for whatever that's worth, which ain't much but you will not be sacramentally married in the Catholic Church, okay? Um, That wedding, it's it's, it's as if you didn't get married at all, which again, for these folks, doesn't seem to matter anyway, but we'll talk about that in a second. But, so the first thing is, is, you know, these destination weddings, you know, for baptized Catholics. Now, it gets more complicated, because if, like, if Larry the the Lutheran marries Patty the Presbyterian um, in front of the judge, the Catholic Church will recognize that as a valid marriage, okay? Um, because, you know, the, the church law that requires baptized Catholics to be married in front of an ordained minister of the church, a deacon, priest, or bishop, and two witnesses, that applies to Catholics, okay? In, in, in church law, there's a dictum that says marriage enjoys the favor of the law. It's kind of like innocent until proven guilty. What it means is the catholic church is going to assume that every marriage is a valid marriage unless you can prove otherwise now one of the ways you can prove otherwise very easily is if you have one or both of the parties as a baptized catholic and if they do not receive the sacrament of matrimony in the catholic church then that's not a valid marriage it's very simple okay and so again the the first piece here is about you know this family member license to marry the couple This couple will not be validly married in the eyes of the church and therefore not in the eyes of God. Oh, that's a bold statement. Father, how dare you say that? Well, I'm not the one that said, you are Peter and upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. Whatever you loose is earth is loosed in heaven. Jesus Christ said that, not me. He said it to Peter. And so therefore, that's what gives the church the right and the authority then to make these definitions. Is about, is about, about the sacrament of matrimony. So if you've got a problem with that, take it up with the Son of God, not with me. Okay, then it says they are currently living together. You know, this is another whole can of worms. We have got tons and tons of data on this now, where basically we find that living together before marriage is the worst possible marriage preparation there is. And you're going, well, wait a minute. You know, no one would, put, would buy a pair of jeans without trying them on first. No one would buy a car without test driving at first and without test driving with as much money you spend on a car, you probably test drive two or three cars before you decide which one to buy. Certainly, it would make sense to move in with your fiance and um, you know, see how things work out before you invest a lifetime with them um, in attempting to live together as husband and wife. And again, on the surface, that makes a lot of sense. But the problem is it just doesn't pan out. The data we have now, a lot of this data comes from um, Rutgers University, which is the State University of New Hampshire. That's how they say it back there in the East New Hampshire, um, of New Hampshire. And this is not a, this isn't a Christian or a Catholic university. It's the state university, like K State or KU or Fort Hayes State. Okay, it's a state university. They have a, they have a Department of Marriage and Family Studies, and they've got, gathered all kinds of data. And now that we've got 60, almost 70 years of data of people taking Christian teaching and biblical teachings on chastity and so forth and throwing it in the trash and going, hey man, as long as I got my birth control pills, anything goes. And if when my birth control pills fail, I've always got abortion, so let the good times roll, baby. Well, that's not doing us any good in that we find that 85% of cohabiting couples divorce within the first five years of marriage. Everybody hear that? I'm gonna say it again. 85% Eighty-five percent of couples who live together before marriage divorce within five years. As I tell people coming into my office, you know, that are wanting to get married and they're living together, I go, Would you jump out of an airplane that had, with a parachute that had an 85% chance of not opening? You know, because what happens is you get these couples in and they're so blinded by the fact that, you know, she's giving him sex and they're having a good old time. And and when they get challenged on this and saying, you know, you're really setting yourself up for failure, 85 percent. Well, we're part of the 15 percent. We'll make it because, you know, 15 percent do succeed. Right, Father? Well, you know, if, the, if that's your if that you want to take your chances on those kind of odds with your life and your future. And really, you know, if couples want to get together and they want to ruin their lives, I really don't care. You know, they're adults. If they want to make a dumpster fire out of their life, do it, suffer. I don't care one bit. But the problem is a lot of times they have children. And they make children and then the children suffer because they're too stubborn and too blinded to understand the wisdom of the biblical teachings that God gives us on, you know, marriage and family and chastity and things like that. Okay. And so the whole idea of living together, it just doesn't work. As again, I've told many a couple, you know, when, whenever you come to the church and you say, yeah, we want to, we want to get married. Well, first of all, when they say they want to get married and when I say you want to get married, we're talking two different things and they do not intersect because when they come in and get married, especially when they're living together, the guy's thinking, well, she wants this and I'd better let her have it because if I don't, she's gonna quit giving me sex. And I've heard him tell me that. I mean, I've, I've had guys tell me to my face in my office, you know, no, I'm happy the way things are. She's the one that wants it, she's making me do this. Well, there went the validity of that marriage because one of the things of marriage is it has to be freely entered into. And if the guy is saying, I'm only doing this because I'm being made to do it, then you're not freely entering into marriage. And so therefore, that marriage is invalid from the get go. Um, So then, you see, you got that aspect of it. And so then, and then the girl, she's not thinking lifelong commitment marriage. What's going through her head is, I'm gonna get to put on a pretty dress and I'm gonna walk down the aisle and it's all gonna be about me. And I'm gonna have my special day. And it's gonna be my queen for a day show. I'll be the little princess for the day, okay? In the meantime, I'm sitting there going, hmm, sacrament of matrimony, covenant, commitment, lifelong, death do us part. And you can see that we're just not connecting. Um, I'll tell you a story from years and years ago. I had a couple that came in, and, and again, they were cohabiting, they were living together, they didn't come to church on Sunday. She was using oral contraceptives, and they want to get married. Well, again, They had no more concept of what they were asking for than the man on the moon. You know, all they would be, well, because I was asking them, I said, well, tell me, what's your understanding of marriage at this point? And they just kind of look at me like, you know, I'm from Mars or something. And I said, well, like, how are you going to be any different after receiving the sacrament of matrimony than you are now? And again, you know, crickets, lots of silence. And finally the girl goes, like a blessing or something like that? Well, okay, yeah, you know, there's a blessing, you know, the nuptial blessing at, at Mass. You know, we ask God's blessing upon the married couple. What about you, Pal? What do you think? How you know? How's this marriage thing gonna make you any different than you are now? You know, some folks run off to Vegas. Some folks just run off to the judge. You're here asking the Church for the sacrament of matrimony. Why? And again, he just sat there with this blank look on his face and he wasn't going to answer nothing because he had no concept. So after about 10 minutes of, of this very awkward silence of me asking them questions and them having no concept of how to answer them, I said, well, do you guys have any questions for me? And oh, little bridezilla, she chirped right up. Oh, yeah, 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 Father. I, I have a question. Well, sure. What's your question? Well, now, does the church have Kendall obers we can borrow or do we have to rent those? You see? Does the church have candelabras or do we have to rent them? You can see what's going through her head. Um, the idea of, again, St. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 5, you know, that marriage, the marriage between man and wife, is a reflection of the marriage of Christ and the church. And all this gal wants to talk about is candelabras. And so, again, you know, are, are do they have any clue as to what they're asking for and, you know, what they're, what they're you know, What they're presenting themselves to the church for if they're living together obviously not you know i always tell them too i said you know you have obstinately and publicly immersed yourself in mortal sin oh father mortal sin can you say that That sounds kind of harsh well take it up with saint paul um in in the letter of the galatians chapter 5 verses 19 and following saint paul has this laundry list of sins and um he and he says now the works of the flesh are obvious Oh, wait, my last, my spot. Here we go. Verse 19, chapter 5, verse 19. Now, the works of the flesh are obvious fornication, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, hatreds, rivalry, jealousy, outbursts of fury, acts of selfishness, dissensions, factions, occasions of envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I have warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, if you don't inherit the kingdom of God, which one do you inherit? There's only two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. If you don't inherit the kingdom of God, you inherit the kingdom of Satan. What's the first sin on the list? fornication what is fornication having sex outside of marriage this is a mortal sin i didn't make this up this comes from saint paul from the bible assuming that matters if all you care about is candelabra you probably don't care but this is what the scriptures say and this will be called objective moral truth and so when you have someone that comes in and says yeah um we don't go to mass on Sunday. Well, there went the third commandment. Um, we know we fornicate. Well, there went the sixth commandment. And um, but we want to put on a pretty dress and nice outfits and you know have this big celebration. And since the priest will be there, and it'll be in church. That means God approves of everything that we're doing. Well, that's a really warped and distorted way of looking at things. And again, I tell these couples, you know, you got to decide what you want to do because you can't prepare for a moment of grace while you're immersed in mortal sin. It's like a, someone, for an alcoholic, bringing a cooler full of beer to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. You can't be drunk and sober at the same time. You can't be in the state of grace and the state of mortal sin at the same time. You gotta pick one, okay? And see, again, I think this is one of the reasons why so many people who live together before marriage, why their marriages fail within five years or less, Um, because they went in expecting grace while they, all they brought to the altar was mortal sin. And so since they never received the grace, not because God withheld it, they didn't receive it because they were not properly disposed to receive it. And since they never received the grace and never received the help um, that someone, you know, could, could receive from, from, from receiving the sacrament of matrimony validly, well, then, of course, you know, the, the difficulties and the challenges of marriage are going to catch up with them. And then they're going to have a hard time getting married and staying married. While back, I was talking to a guy who was on the eve of his fiftieth anniversary and he was saying, yep. He says, you know, he goes, I love my wife dearly, and you know, my kids, they kind of worry me sometimes, but you know, you you keep pushing ahead and he goes, I just want to tell these couples out there, if you just hang on till like thirty-five or forty years, you know, you'll you'll make it. You know, that, that after, you know, after thirty five or forty years of marriage, you know, you'll 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 get on the the, the downward side of it and you'll coast in and you'll make it. And so, you know, there's lots of practical advice out there for folks who just need a little bit of of encouragement to stick with it and try to make it work. But getting back to our question from Marie, again, this idea of someone getting married by someone who got a license to marry people wherever in the Rose Garden or out in the wheat field or on the beach or whatever, that's not a valid sacramental marriage. They're currently living together. You can't prepare for a moment of grace by immersing yourself in mortal sin. Now here comes the next piece. It says the entire family and extended family will be attending the wedding. Okay. And then it's a little bit later. We do love this couple, but we don't approve of the ceremony. Now, here's the difficulty that you have here. You have a head on collision between what is objectively, morally, right, true and good. Okay. What is objectively, morally, right, true and good. Boy meets girl, girl meets boy, boy and girl fall in love, boy and girl you know start dating, boy proposes marriage to girl, girl accepts proposal, they are fiancés, they you know sometime later they receive the sacrament of matrimony within the context of mass at the church and in so doing now they are validly and licitly married before the eyes of God, okay? And then on their wedding night or sometime thereafter, You know, you have a virgin young man who makes love to his virgin bride, and they're each other's first and only partners. Now, you're going, Father, are you out of your ever-loving mind? Who fills that criteria in this day and age? Um, Very, very few, I'll tell you. I'm not stupid. I know that very, very few people fill that criteria. But I've got two questions for you. Number one, that scenario that I just presented, you know, where the boy meets girl, the girl meets the boy, they're each other's first and only, you know, I hate to use the term because it sounds so cold, but sex partners, as it were. In a situation like that, who gets hurt? I'm gonna ask the question again. In a situation like that, where the boy and the girl, the young man, the young woman, they get married, and a virgin young man makes love to his virgin spouse on their wedding night or sometime thereafter, who gets hurt? The answer is nobody. On the other hand, you look at what we have, where starting at a very young age, you know, teen years, where irresponsible mothers put their daughters on birth control pills when they're in high school. And then, you know, the girls go out and do all kinds of experimenting around with sex, with, with different kinds of boys. They get into college and continue it. And of course, you know, when the contraceptive fails, you know, the abortions are not far behind. And then we just have this, this, you know, this train wreck in, in the wake of the whole thing, where you have young men who do not, have, no, do not know how to treat women, you've got women who have been devastated because they've traded in their integrity and their character and their morals to these guys who just want to use them. And the whole time, you know, the, the the women, I think, are thinking, well, you know, if, if I go ahead and let him have sex with me, then he'll love me. No, they're just using you, you know? And then, you know, the the shredded up babies from the abortions and the illegitimate kids, if they're lucky, enough to be born and all the trouble that comes from that. See, again, compare that whole, you know, wake of destruction to a virgin young man makes love to his virgin young bride on or about their wedding night. And they're each other's first and only, you know, sexual partners. Who gets hurt with that? Nobody. And so you can see what God's trying to teach us here is that it's not that, you know, it's just a bunch of rules from the the out-of-touch medieval Catholic Church. No, these are coming from the scriptures to teach us that if we live outside these, these, these rules, chaos ensues. And I hope I don't have to do too much to convince anyone listening to this broadcast of the degree of the chaos that we see going on around us. All right. So that's piece number one. Piece number two is emotional blackmail, and I boy have I seen this over the years. I'll give you a few examples. Um, some years ago, when I was still in Hayes, there was a man who I'm not going to mention his name obviously because everybody would know who I'm talking about. He was kind of kind of a visible person there in Hayes, America, and um, comes to me one time years and years ago, and says, "Well, Father, my son is going to marry his boyfriend." And um, this is before such things were legal in the United States, before the Supreme Court betrayed us. Um, But but it was legal in Canada. And he's going to go to Canada to marry his boyfriend in Canada. And I don't believe in that. Do I have to go to the wedding? And I said, well, you just answered your own question. You don't believe in it. Should you go to the wedding? Well, no, I shouldn't. I know I shouldn't, but he's my son and I love him. OK, and furthermore, he told me that if I don't go to the wedding, if my wife and I don't go, he will he will never speak to us again. And, you know, he will be dead as far as he's concerned. OK, that is the coldest, cruelest act of blackmail I think I've ever heard. Well, there's another one just like it. I'll get that in a minute. But OK, so here you have this guy living a life of fornication and sodomy, you know, totally antithetical to anything in the scriptures And then he comes up to his parents and says, now you will celebrate this with me. And if you don't, I will use your love for me against you. I will take the love that I know you have for me, and I will use it to force you to compromise your beliefs, your morals and your integrity. In other words, you will do what I tell you to do, or I will never talk to you again. And I know you don't want that. So you will do what I want you to do again, moral blackmail, spiritual blackmail. Um, same thing with heterosexual couples. Um, have a, I've had a number of couples come to me in my 30 plus years of priesthood. Father, we don't know what to do. Our child, our son, our daughter, whatever, is marrying their fiance at such and such a, a, a ceremony. They're not getting married in the Catholic Church. We told them they need to be married in the Catholic Church and they don't see the need for that. And they told us that if we don't come to the wedding and celebrate with them, they will never see their grandchildren. Well, talk about, you know, a dart to the heart, an arrow or a knife into the heart of, you know, people that are on, on the, the the verge of being grandparents, to being told, again, it's emotional blackmail. You know, the parents know what is morally and you know for what, what would be morally right, you know, of, of upstanding character and things like that. They know what it is. The kids know what it is. But the kids have decided we don't want this. You know, we 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 want to be able to have free sex. We want to do whatever it is we want to do. And if you don't come along with us, you will pay a dear price. You know, we we will make sure that you never see your grandchildren. And so, what are these poor parents supposed to do? You know, now I I can tell you what happens. What I tell people is. What you do is you say, well, have a nice wedding, have a nice life. Because what's hanging in the balance are these two things. There's the relationship with your child, who is evidently a very cruel and ungrateful person. There's also your personal character, integrity, and morals. If you sacrifice your personal character, integrity, and morals for the sake of this person who is obviously not a very good person, then you lose all that and you're not gonna have much relationship with this kid either whereas if you hold fast your character your integrity and your morals yeah the relationship with this ungrateful child might suffer but at least you will have your character your integrity and your morals that will all be intact you can work on the relationship with the kid at a later time maybe they'll come around maybe they won't there's no guarantees in life but the whole point though is is again you know a big a big aspect of people you know getting involved with all these really bizarre and um and immoral situations there's always a very heavy dose of emotional blackmail in there and you know we we always know um, what what the right thing to do is but then we have a hard time doing it because of the emotional investment that we have with these people so in this particular case you can see where this, this, you know, Marie and her husband, they're kind of in a bad spot here. Again, it says, we do love this couple. There's the emotional blackmail, but don't approve of the ceremony. And also, why do young people believe they have to live together before marriage? Again, they think that it's a, that it's, they always have their excuses. One is try before you buy. The other is, well, we'll save a lot of money this way. If we move in together, you know, between now and the wedding, we'll save a lot of money and not having to pay two rents or whatever the case might be. Um, That's always kind of a bogus argument as well. I have fun with that one because the couple will come in and go, well, we just can't afford it. I said, okay, let me ask you this. You know, what if I was, you know father mega bucks, you know, I had jillions of dollars in the bank, and I go, okay, Billy Bob, okay, Lulu Bell, here's the deal. I will put a quarter million dollars in the bank in a, you know, a trust fund account or whatever for your child's college education if you move apart for the duration of the marriage preparation. Could you do it then? And it's always so funny to watch your faces light up. Oh, yeah, yeah, well, for a quarter million, Oh sure, yeah, we could do that. Uh, okay, so evidently, you can do it, you're just not motivated to do it. And then, again, they give you kind of this blank stare, but whatever. Um, so the deal, though, in, is, is, again, um, what can we do to turn this around? All I can say is good luck. The problem with it is is that the society, you know, if you go back to, say, I don't know, 1928. That's a good, good date. Or 1948. If you had a guy living with a woman or a woman living with a guy, and they were not married, you know, the guy might lose his job. You know, the guy might go to work, and, you know, the the boss says, Hey, Herb, come here and sit on my office a second. Yeah, what's up? Hey, uh, I heard, is it true that you're just shacking up with some gal? Well, yeah, my choice, right? Well, yeah, it's your choice. It's also my choice to fire you. I don't hire people like that, you know. That's what would have happened back in those days. There was a lot of social pressure brought to bear on people to get married, quote-unquote, right. You know, that you wait until you get married, then you move in together, then you start having sex and having children, you know, and things like that. And the thing with it is, I think back in those days, the reason why there was so much pressure, the the the, the forces at work today will say, well, that's because back in those days, people's minds were controlled by religion. And um, and so then they didn't understand tolerance and diversity and, and, and understanding and so on and so forth. You know, and all they cared about was their religion. No, I think what the deal was, is back in those days, first of all, we didn't have all these tax-funded programs that reward irresponsible behavior, Name having children out of wedlock and so people were saying you know we're gonna bring pressure to bear on these young people so that they they be be, before they start having children having sex and having children it's gonna be after they're married so that we don't have a whole bunch of kids growing up in poverty and you know now because you know now even though we have all these programs the biggest poverty um, demographic in the United States is unwed mothers with their children and so, you know, the, the I think back in those days, people just sort of had a natural understanding that without marriage, you have financial ruin. You know, the, the one of the one of the even to this very day, you know, one of the biggest indicators for people having financial stability and so on is that they get married, they have babies and they stay married in that order. Get married. Have babies, stay married. It doesn't matter what race you are, it doesn't matter what you know where you come from, you know, along the socioeconomic strata. People that do that, people that get married, have babies and stay married, tend to have be better off financially. And again, I think that back in the in, you know, before the 1960s and before the advent of the birth control pill in 1961, I think people knew that instinctively. And so that's why there was a lot of pressure that was brought to bear on young couples to, you know, do the right thing before they got married. And so uh, again, what can you do to turn the trend around? All I can say is just try to set good example and pray because, you know, the, the forces, the cultural forces on us are so huge, trying to go against them is is not gonna work. Um, in fact, you know, even if, if you tried to make it illegal, I don't know, let's pass a law that makes it illegal to have sex outside of marriage and to, you know, to live together before marriage and so on. That would be a disaster. There's no way you can enforce it, number one, and because number two, you look at the laws that we have, nobody obeys them anyway. So it's not gonna be a change of law, it's gonna be a change of heart. It's gonna have to be people being converted, you know, converted Christians to understand this is what God wants us to do, and more importantly, this is why. And this is why it's in my best interest to follow this, okay? That is a pretty loaded question from Marie, but I think that, again, with the societal forces that are at work, the only thing that's going to bring about any kind of a drastic change and bring some kind of sanity back to an insane situation is going to be a total collapse of society. You know, if the dollar collapses and, you know, people have to go back to live in the way they did during the Great Depression, it'll kind of wake a lot of people up. And, you know, maybe, you know, people will come around to being able to deal with what's true and what's right and what's good again instead of just what they feel, with go, feel like going with at the moment. So again, that kind of wraps up another installment here of Double-Edged Sword. Um, We're glad you tuned in to listen to us today on our fine family of Divine Mercy Catholic radio stations, KMDG 105.7 Hayes, KGOH 89.1 Colby, KRTT 88.1 Great Bend, KJDM 101.7 Lindsberg Salina, and KVDM 88.1 Hayes. As always here, we invite you to log on to our um, Divine Mercy Radio website at DV, that's V as in Victor, dvmercy.com. And on that website, you will find archived installments of Double-Edged Sword in One Body, um, both of which are locally produced shows here for our own Catholic radio um, audiences here with our Divine Mercy Radio stations. And also the ever important donate button. Um, Our programs are brought to you um, only by donations and and, um, from, from fine listeners like yourself. And also from our underwriters we invite you to um listen to their advertisements here on on double Edged sword and to patronize those that 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 underwrite um catholic radio um these these radio waves you know we have to pay an electric bill and like anybody else and so it doesn't come to us free and so we depend on your support um to keep it going so again i am father fred gatchett i am the the rector at sacred heart cathedral in salina kansas and the Vicar General for the Diocese of Salina. And you've been listening to the Double-Edged Sword program here on, on Divine Mercy Radio. We thank you for tuning in, and we will look forward to seeing you next time. Goodbye, and God bless.